This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. An advocacy group is taking on Governor Malloy's big plans to make our highways bigger. And fingers continue to point after the state lost General Electric to Boston. The question now, what is next for Connecticut? Those are just a few of the stories we will talk about today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Before I introduce our panel, I want to say thanks to the team that helped to put together a really nice event last night in New Haven. Our Wheelhouse Uncensored 2.0 event uh, came off wonderfully at the Tavern in downtown New Haven. Thanks, as always, to Colin McEnroe, who is uh, my co-host, uh, Paul Bass from the New Haven Independent, Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, and a really enthusiastic crowd of political nerds and junkies. So thanks to everyone who made that happen. Today, you can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Colin made it back in this morning to join us once again on the wheelhouse. Hi there, Colin. In baseball terms, this is kind of a night day doubleheader. Yes, it's a night day doubleheader. It's good to have you back. Susan Bigelow is here, a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Hello once again, Susan. Good morning. And David Collins is a columnist for the Day of New London. Good to see you once again, David. Good morning. We spent a lot of time last night talking about a lot of issues that are kind of fun to talk about, uh, things that you can kind of goof around, you know, uh, whether people are on the campaign trail saying silly things. Uh, today we're going to start with a story that's just not funny at all, and it just seems to get more serious by the moment. It's a, it's a topic that we frequently discuss when David Collins joins us. It's a State Senator Andrew Maynard. He was involved in a fall in 2014 at his home. He suffered severe brain injuries. Uh, Now, last week, he was involved in a car crash, and police have confirmed that he was driving the car in the wrong direction. Here is Maynard's attorney, Robert Reardon. He had a severe concussion right on the forehead. He had a terrible uh, abrasion, probably from the airbag hitting him. When you have a brain injury, a pre-existing brain injury, and then you suffer a severe concussion to your head, there's a lot of chance that you might suffer additional permanent injury. So far, it appears that is not the case. And that is certainly good news that there's not more permanent injury. The question that we have to deal with today is how some of the stories about this accident have changed. Originally, we heard from the Senate Democrats that this was a one-car accident and that the senator was conscious. We didn't know that he had been rendered unconscious. We didn't know that he was going the wrong way uh, in the wrong lane, and we didn't know there was another car involved, both cars being totaled. Um, David Collins, I'll start with you because your paper has been covering this as closely as anyone. What do we know right now about what happened with Andy Maynard beyond what I've just said? Um, We now know it was a very serious accident. Um, It was on uh, the side of a divided highway, Route 32 in Norwich. Um, There are Jersey barriers there. He came down the wrong direction, southbound on the northbound lanes, um, for a long distance because there's really where the accident occurred is about a mile from any place where you could have entered into that section with the Jersey barrier. So um, he was going apparently at a high rate of speed. Um, he, he grazed the car that he hit and then totaled it. Um, and then his car ended up uh, beyond the, a guardrail. It seems the only way it could have uh, landed there is to have gone airborne or to kind of go end over end over the guardrail. Um, this was a very, very serious accident. Um, fortunately, nobody was more seriously injured. Um, he was certainly injured. Um, the woman who was driving the other car apparently has complained that she was injured. Um, it could have been could have been much worse. It was a very, very serious, and, and it leaves you with the, uh, of course, with this question: What went wrong? How could anyone have? have allowed themselves to get into that um, situation and and how did the accident what was in what what was wrong with his state of mind that allowed this accident to occur and, and I think a lot of those things are things we probably can't answer definitively 
from what we know, because we, we truly don't know how impaired he was in, in terms of his ability to drive, how much he's been able to drive since his, his brain injury. Here's what we do know, Davis, something that has been a little shocking to us is our initial report that came from uh, the spokesman for the state Senate Democrats essentially said that this was a, a one car accident, uh, according to um, Andrew um, Adam Joseph, excuse me, a Senate Democrat spokesman. Uh, this is what we got last Thursday this afternoon after participating in a caucus with the Senate colleagues at the Capitol. Senator Andrew Maynard was involved in a one car accident on Route 32 in Waterford. He was treated at the scene, is conscious and is undergoing further evaluation at an area hospital. We, we now know that at least some of those things weren't exactly right. Um, how much of this story is about what we found out from Senate Democrats and what we maybe should have found out from the people who are, are working with him at the Senate? Um, you know, it was very troubling, and, and really we didn't learn more of what happened until we um, got a phone call in the newsroom at the day, uh, Friday morning, um, uh, from the husband of the woman who was uh, hit. Um, and that's when we began to learn how how misrepresented the whole accident had been, both from uh, Adam Joseph's statement from Senate Democrats and from the Waterford police. And, you know, I'd like to believe that it was just a series of miscommunications and um, and the truth sort of fell by the side um, somewhere along the way. I'd like to believe that, but um, the truth of the matter, the fact of the matter is um, it took a long time for the for the seriousness of this accident to become known. Colin? Yeah, and first of all, I mean, I feel like we have to say every comment that I make on this show anyway is going to be basically building on David's reporting, which uh, has been exemplary on this and has helped us understand this in a way that we ordinarily would not have. So, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the problems that I have is the police... There can be sort of fog of war type miscommunications by the police or the police to Adam Joseph of the Senate caucus office, say, in the first 12 hours. Although the police tend to know whether it's a one car or two car accident. That's not the kind of mistake that mis- that police typically make. So and, and the fact that this kind of just stayed on the books for a long time until in, in your reporting, David, as you say, this husband called you. I mean, in other words, at some point, somebody should have been picking up the phone and calling the news media and saying, you're all reporting this now as a one car accident, and it's not. And it seems as though the police were unusually passive uh, about this. And, and I guess I would also, I would also say that as, uh, I'm, I think the initial reporting led us to believe that Andy Maynard's medical condition was not as severe as it was. I now we now now I think a four night right. hospital stay. Right. I don't think we were getting that impression initially. So uh, just a couple of quick things about that. One of them is, you know, I mean, Andy Maynard's a great guy. Everybody likes him, but. He's been in this sort of very murky area really since the injury. And the injury, of course, occurred while moving furniture at 2.40 in the a.m. This is the uh, original injury, the yes. The original injury occurred at 2.40 a.m. moving furniture, which I, I, itself is a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Why are, you, why are you moving a heavy chair up some stairs in an outdoor balcony at 2.40 in the morning? And since then, it's been very difficult to sort of get a sense of what his level of functioning is. So he, to everybody's shock, returned to his duties in the Senate. But as David has reported extensively, there's not a lot of evidence that he's functioning the way a typical state senator can function in terms of being able to participate fully in debates or talk to constituents or or anything like that. And there's a lot to say about this, and I want to get on to Susan's comments. But the thing I'll quickly say that I think is sort of troubling in a a more uber way is that – 
the the legislature is kind of famously clubbish, and they do tend to look after one another. And this certainly isn't the first time where somebody in the legislature has been involved in a significant driving incident where the legislature's first instinct was to circle the wagons and and keep public scrutiny to a minimum. And it's one of the reasons that I get nervous in a larger sense every time they do things like their 2013 FOI panel where they were starting to try to control or adjust this. First of all, they passed a law changing our access to police records. Well, guess what? Here's a police record that we really want access to. I mean, ultimately, we really want to know everything that the police ever knew about Andy Maynard's accident. And and obviously, the thing that they did in 2013 was very different. It involved homicides. But I get nervous when these people start making making decisions about what we have access to because we know that in these kinds of situations, they're extremely secretive in a way that they should not be. And I think the the story that leads us to this, Susan, and and why Dave, I think, and I are both saying we we certainly do want to believe that what's being reported out of the Senate Democrats was – reported out of the Senate Democrats because that's all the information they had. But we've been in this period since 2014 in this accident that the senator had in which it's been very hard for anybody to get access to him. It's been very difficult to get past the notion that he's not able to function in the way he was able to function before. And to use Collins terminology, um, his colleagues uh, in the Democratic Party have repeatedly circled the wagons in order to sort of keep us at arm's distance from Andy Maynard. And now this thing sort of brings it right back in our face. It does. And there's there's a lot of stuff that's sort of worrying. He was reelected in 2014, which I don't think he did. He couldn't really do much campaigning. Uh, there was a mailer that was sent out that sort of showed him uh, almost interacting with constituents. But it doesn't seem like that's something he's able to do. Um, and, you know, I understand why people want to give him a lot of leeway. They want to give him as much, um, you know, as much as they can to because you know, obviously he's been through through an awful lot. But after a certain time, there starts to be a question of, uh, yeah, you want to be fair to him. But then there's a question of being fair to his constituents as well. And it, it does seem like there's almost a vacuum down in uh, southeastern Connecticut. Well, you know, there's never been any disclosure. Um, the, the, none of his medical records have been made available. None of his doctors have been made available to discuss his condition. Um, the whole question now has come up about his driving. What is his medical condition? Was he cleared to drive? They, the, the, uh, Adam Joseph from the Senate Democrats said he was cleared to drive. Turns out that he was quoting the family as saying that. I mean, th- these are all things now, especially after this accident. Um, I think people, these records need to be presented and there needs to be some testimony from, from his doctors. I know that he's protected under HIPAA and his medical records are private, but he's a public official and he's doing the people's business and voting on matters. And, and the, 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 it, it seems clear that he's not able to really communicate with people very, very, very well. And um, he won't give any interviews. He won't allow himself to be examined, if you will, by the press or by his constituents. Um, public officials, the uh, municipal leaders in eastern Connecticut say they, they can't talk to him. Uh, they have no contact with him. They feel like they have no senator in the Senate. And the Senate Democrats have just circled the wagons and allowed this to continue, and it's it's worrisome, and this this hopefully will be a breaking point that they're going to have to be more honest in the forthcoming. And that's really the issue, Susan, is in the absence of any information, people are left to speculate, and speculation is never good. When you, We don't want to speculate about whether or not Andrew Maynard is able to drive a car. Um, he may or may not be cleared. We don't know enough about that to know. This raises the question, at least, in the, again, in the absence of information, people, whether it's constituents or members of the press, are left to speculate. And again, that's never a place we want to be. No, it's not. And there's there's certainly been a lot of speculation that, well, he's just he's just there to 
um, if he's if he's there for ten years, I believe he gets a, a pension and some medical uh, for for the rest of his life, uh, which he wouldn't get if he didn't finish out this particular term that he's finishing out right now. Uh, there's also the rumors that well, he's just there to uh, so that the Democrats can kind of prop him up and have him vote for things that. Uh, and I guess that he he's a very moderate, more more of a moderate Democrat, and he has been voting party line with the liberals who control things in Hartford, which seems out of character, and people have frowned at that. So there's a lot of speculation, and a lot of things that really really need clearing up. Well, and let's just listen to his his attorney once again, Robert Reardon, talking about uh, whether or not he is going to be joining the caucus once again in February when the legislative session starts up. He has every intention of being there when they open the Senate in February. And uh, he believes that he'll do it, and he believes he will serve his time term and continue to make valuable contributions. And I must add that if you check with his colleagues in the Senate, they will confirm that he has made valuable contributions in the, in, since he returned uh, to, was returned to office overwhelmingly by his constituents. And, and I want to get to a mailer that was sent to constituents about some of the things that he's done in office in just a moment. But, Colin, to, to comment on this other issue, again, that somewhat needs some clarity, because if if he finishes out this term, he will essentially vest with this 10-year uh, state service that allows him to get much more extensive benefits, including medical benefits, something that would be very, very needed, I would think, for someone who has the type of medical conditions that he has. It's been pointed to for one of the reasons that so many people have, we'll use it again, circled the wagons and supported him in both his run for re-election when we weren't sure if he was able to, and then his, their support for him now after this accident. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things about this. First of all, I'll venture a prediction, which is that this in this session, the legislature will, by special act, just give him his benefits. I mean, that's something that they can do. They probably should have done it a while ago. Um, but, I mean, beyond that, obviously, this comes up all the time. John, you and I have this conversation in the newsroom all the time. We're often talking about something when we talk, particularly we talk about people in, in who work for the state of Connecticut in one way or another. We are talking about things that seem like either highly desirable things or maybe even dire necessities, which are essentially not available to the rest of the public. So, I mean, although I think it, you know, I, I sympathize with Andy Maynard. I sympathize with the situation he's in. What we're really talking about is him qualifying in the course of performing what is still considered anyway a part-time job for some pretty terrific benefits that the average worker in Connecticut doesn't get. So, I mean, I guess my sympathy and my desire that Andy Maynard be well taken care of and all this kind of stuff has to be tempered a little bit with the fact that we are really kind of talking about this pretty gold-plated um, package that that's just it's not there for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's interesting to, to look in the crystal ball and see what's going to happen in this session, but I I, I wonder really, first of all, if, if the senator and his family um, are planning, it sounds like from hearing it from his lawyer that they're certainly not planning for him to resign. Um, even if the, And if the benefits were made available through some special act or they gave him a job of some kind on the state payroll and he could see his way through to, the, to his benefits, um, I think the Democrats, the state Senate Democrats, are most worried about a special election. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's certainly um, Heather Bond Summers who ran for lieutenant governor. Um, she's in the wings. It's her district. Um, uh, she seems to be interested in, the, in, in running. Uh, I think the Democrats are worried about that. And I think that by giving, by letting um, the Senate 
senator off the hook, if you will, and helping him through to his benefits will mean a special election. And and I think that they're worried about that. And instead, they have a senator who's voting their 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 line. Well, uh, voting their line, and, and, and as I mentioned, you're sending out a mailer to constituents to touting some of the things that he's been able to accomplish uh, during this this last uh, time in office, even after his accident, David. Uh, yeah, the mailer, I, I thought, was a sort of, you know, it's one thing I think people feel um, they like Andy and they want to see him through this. And, and I, I think I have sort of and voters overwhelmingly um, sent him back to, to Hartford. But I, I think things like the mailer I, uh, get under get gets under people's skin because it's this it's this representation that he's that everything's fine and that he's just uh, doing a normal term in the Senate and it's not it's clearly not the case when you Could talk to people who talk to him and and observe him he can't they acknowledge he can't really he has speech problems he can't even communicate but even even beyond his speech problems um, there seems to be be much deeper health issues that he, they're not just discussing Susan could we agree that these mailers are a bad idea anyway for everybody. I mean, I get one from Beth Bai, who is a senator whom I have enormous esteem and about whose capacity to do her job in an exemplary manner, I have no doubts. But I mean, I actually don't think they should be allowed on the public dime to send us these mailers about what they've accomplished. I mean, things we need to know that's I think they should be able to mail us about that. But things that they have accomplished, which is typically the form these mailers take, I have some real questions about whether that's anything we should be paying. Yeah, no, it's they're ads. They feel like ads. Um, they're often they often show a big smiling picture of the senator uh, or the the office holder or whoever, and it lists, lists of very glowing accomplishments. It doesn't feel like it's just informative. It feels like it's an ad to me. We're getting a tweet here from Doug Hardy who says, "Lovely witch hunt underway here." His job is to vote yes or no. He speaks to reporters all the time, Susan. I mean, you know, th- th- there's there's a certain there's a certain question that I think some people have that that we're going far too hard at this, and mm. you know that I, one thing I can say is that whether or not it's our reporter Harry Jones has been covering this for us or any of the reporters that David works with at the day, we've tried repeatedly to get leadership, Senate leadership. Martin Looney won't talk to us about this, near as we can tell, and we'd love it if, if the senator could call us up during the program and, and tell us a little bit more about uh, Senate plans. Um, I, I don't know. Is there is there any sense at all that um, those of us in the press, including the New London Day, are just going at poor Annie Maynard too hard? I feel two ways about this. Uh, on the one hand, you know, it, it doesn't feel good to go after somebody, just even to ask questions about somebody who has a, a mental uh, mental disability who has uh, been through as much as Senator Maynard it has. It doesn't feel good. No, no it doesn't. And it <laughs> feels like it's, you know, it feels like it's improper in a lot of ways. But it, I feel like there are questions that we need answers to at this point just because it, it is the people's business. Um, and I, I feel like if we don't have answers to these questions, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it, it just leaves too much on the table and I wonder what's going on. Um, we'll, we'll leave it there. If you don't want to join us, 860-275-7266, if you have thoughts about that. When we come back from a break, we're going to be talking about something that we've actually been talking a lot about on our program, including in yesterday's uh, live wheelhouse event, talking about General Electric leaving the state. We're trying to look forward a little bit about what's next for Connecticut after that. We're also going to be talking about highway widening. Some advocates say it's not the best way for Connecticut to spend its transportation dollars. Those stories coming up here on The Wheelhouse and Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by David Collins, who's a columnist for The Day of New London, Susan Bigelow, who is a columnist at ctnewsjunkie.com, and our own Colin McEnroe. Colin McEnroe is, of course, the host of the aptly named Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. What's on your show today, Colin? Well, today it'll be the Barbara Show. Color us, uh, Barbara. We're going to do a, uh, there's a, a play being uh, produced here in Hartford about Barbara Streisand called Bu- Buyer and Seller. We decided to kind of expand that, really sort of look at Barbara Streisand. She, people react very strongly one way or another to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> so I think that's where we're going. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Barbara Streisand on the program, not the actual Barbara Streisand, mind you. But she talk, might call in. She might. That would be great if she called in uh, this afternoon at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. She might call show. in today on the wheelhouse. Uh, she know? could. She's very concerned about GE. Um, <laughs> and we're going to move to GE in just a second. We've been talking about State Senator and Andrew Maynard. Uh, quickly, just want to get a follow-up comment from a friend, Doug Hardy, who uh, wants to say public officials owe a certain amount of disclosure but still have some privacy when they're hospitalized, etc. Uh, Gregory is calling from West Hartford. Hi, Gregory. What's on your mind? Good morning. Hi. I'm a big fan of the Democrats. I'm a big fan of the State Senate, and I think everything they're doing is great. But I think you guys are doing your job, too, and it's not a witch hunt to basically pay, uh, to post these questions and put it out there. You can't be fair, or you can't be on one side and, and not be fair to the other. So it's unfortunate. He's a great guy, and he's done a fantastic job, but you guys still have a job to do. Hey, Gregory, I, I have to ask you a question. This is something that came up during our break, and Colin had sort of hinted this before. If after this terrible accident that Andy Maynard had in 2014, if his colleagues had kind of identified the situation and said, we want to take a vote, we want to make sure he gets his state benefits so that he, he can have medical for the rest of his life, uh, and essentially asked him to step aside, is that something you would have been okay with, or is that something you would have questioned, too, as a Democrat? No, I would have definitely said that. I mean, I think it's an individual case. Uh, you know, I've actually worked uh, with the LOB years ago, and, you know, Don Williams is an old friend. I mean, I'm semi-retired from politics, but I'm well-known in eastern Connecticut, and Andrew Maynard has done a fantastic job for his district, and I don't think anybody would dispute that. But I think they need to look at on the record. They need to see what each individual person's contribution is and see if whether or not they do or do not deserve it. And I think that's, again, only fair. Gregory, thank you so much for your phone call. Just a last word on this from you, David Collins. You know, I think an important piece of this is what do the constituents say? And I'm sure that you're hearing from a lot of readers in your area who are asking questions about this just as the press is. Absolutely. I think uh, people, are, especially this accident, I think has brought to the forefront the fact that uh, um, there are serious health issues here that aren't being discussed fully. And um, I think people are now looking for some, some disclosure and some open and frank discussion about um, what happens next. Um, we're going to move on to uh, the topic of General Electric uh, leaving Connecticut. It's something that obviously we've been talking about quite a bit around the newsroom and has been banded around in the press for the last couple of days. As a matter of fact, if you joined us at the Wheelhouse Uncensored event last night, we, we did spend quite a bit of time talking about this. Uh, after uh, we heard that GE was leaving for Boston, there have been reports about it's happening because Connecticut isn't an interesting enough place with big bustling cities. It's that we have too bad a tax structure. Is it that we're not a good enough place to do business? Colin and I have talked a lot about this, Susan Bigelow. As you look at this GE situation, what do you see here? I mean, because I think we want to look forward for the state and what is kind of next and not just dwell on this issue. But what do you see coming out of this GE decision? What I see here is just a is um, an, uh, an example of a trend that of larger trends that are happening all over the country where 
uh, back in the 70s when GE moved to Fairfield, a lot of companies were moving their headquarters out of cities like New York and Boston to the suburbs and building these huge office parks. And now we're starting to see the reverse. We're starting to see companies abandoning these office parks and moving back into the cities. And honestly, I think that that's part of the, of the future for Connecticut is seeing companies moving into our downtowns and our cities becoming more vibrant and lively places instead of just being sort of ghost towns after the downtowns being ghost towns after 5 p.m. Um, you might have a lot of people living and working down there and larger companies having headquarters down there and will will add to the mix. I think that's that's what the future is going to be. Um, but I do think that big companies, legacy companies like GE and I don't know, maybe Aetna and a few others like that, I think that that they may look uh, look uh, farther afield, and we might have to be worried that they will will look and say maybe Hartford's not the place for us, or New Haven, or Bridgeport, or Stamford are not the place for us. We want to be somewhere that's this that's a huge hub like Boston or New York. Uh, you know, and David, down in your neck of the woods, down in southeastern Connecticut, certainly you've seen the outmigration of tens of thousands of jobs over the years, and then different sorts of jobs come back in when the casinos. Uh, take hold, and then the casinos start to lose money, and some of those jobs go away. So this cycle of like big employers coming and going is something that can be very destructive or very uh, huge, really, for for a region. What do you see out of this GE move? Right, I, I agree with Susan. I think that the the big appeal here was to get up to Boston and to be a part of this tech hub, and 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 this this appeal to no longer be a suburban uh, sprawling office campus, but to be part of a big city. And we saw it very clearly. Almost the same thing with Pfizer. Pfizer moved a lot of jobs to Boston. Um, they wanted to be there because of the, the colleges and the, and the research uh, uh, opportunities. And um, they wanted to be part of that kind of, you know, tech um, um, college um, hub in Boston. And, you know, New London couldn't compete with that. And I think Fairfield County couldn't compete with Boston either with this, with this move. And I, I hate to give the governor too much cover, but I, I, it seems to me that was a lot of the <clears throat> inspiration for this move. Colin? I said last night, I'll say it again. First of all, I feel like this is the most overcovered story in about a year, just in the sense that, I mean, we're really talking about 200 bodies here. There's another 600 bodies. We don't really know where they're going to go. Some of them may wind up in Norwalk. But at, at the moment, we know that 200 people are going from Fairfield to Boston. Uh, 200 jobs are, are going there. And obviously, there are some other kind of bullet effects here, including uh, the GE Charitable Foundation, which directs a lot of money into the Fairfield area. That will have, have an impact. I'm not suggesting there is no impact from this. There is. But I, the, the amount of garment rending about this, to me, is disproportionate uh, to the actual pain that we're going to experience around this. Meanwhile, uh, I would say, just to kind of double down on some of the things that have already been said here, it, you know, it seems to me that, well, first of all, the Governor Malloy, I mean, unfortunately, his policy is basically to bribe big companies to stay, and you can't bribe any everybody. In fact, when you enact a policy like that, you pick winners and losers. So the winner he picked in this case was UTC, which competes against GE for a lot of things. You probably weren't going to be able to keep GE in, in the barn after you started directing that amount of corporate welfare at UTC. Um, and, and in general, it seems to me that when you start doing this, when you start essentially bribing big companies with hundreds of millions of dollars over, over several years' time in incentives to stay or to relocate, you really cripple yourself. You cripple your ability to turn your cities into the things that Susan uh, and David are talking about uh, and that really probably more of our energy should be directed at small businesses. Small businesses are really what help 
build um, vital economies and build up cities. Cities get exciting because of small businesses, because of startups that are going on in the cities um, and corresponding retail and entertainment options. You know, nobody thinks Boston is exciting because it has a hard rock cafe, assuming it does, you know. Um, but that's sort of been often our policy of urban development here, too, when we try to build up the, the corresponding attractions. We try to, once again, lure in big companies. And what we really need to be doing is taking indigenous stuff, small stuff, building it up, making it more exciting. Uh, that's probably the way of the future, and it's something we can do. But these hundreds of millions of dollars directed at these companies, I mean, it seems to me that they cripple our ability to do other good stuff. And uh, going back to your, your, your original point, Colin, about uh, this story being overcovered, yeah, it is. But this, this, um, you know, the actual impact of it's not not huge. It's going to be it's going to be something. It's going to hurt a bit, especially in Fairfield. But it's it's not huge. But the psychological impact is immense. This GE was a prestige thing, uh, and having it leave, it it's it's a, a sort of blow to the old self esteem. It's like when the Whalers left. It's like moving a sports team. Uh, the economic impact is not huge, but the psychological impact is massive. And I feel like this, uh, this feels like relocating sports teams to me in a lot of ways, where you have cities and states trying to outbid each other to throw monies at these, money at this big corporation so it can move a couple hundred jobs from one state to another, um, just for, in a lot of ways, the prestige. Because you notice that the Massachusetts media... And uh, Governor Baker in Massachusetts, they're making a huge deal out of this, even though for Boston it really, it really isn't that big of a deal, given how much they have there. This is not going to add a lot to it. But it, again, it's all about the prestige. You feel like you've won a victory if GE comes, and if GE leaves here, um, it feels like a terrible loss. I, I will say that uh, Boston does have a Hard Rock Cafe, Colin. It is officially the least interesting thing in Boston. David? Um, I will say I agree with both uh, Colin and Susan um, in, in the sense that the impact isn't that great, especially in Fairfield County um, in these kinds of jobs, the number of jobs. But I know from eastern Connecticut when we lost the Pfizer jobs, the quality of those jobs was really felt in the economy. I mean, these were people who had expensive houses that are now kind of lingering on the market. Our, our, our numbers, our, our sales... Um, Housing sales numbers are, are continuing to kind of lag the rest of the state. And I think a lot of that is because of, of Pfizer. Um, car dealers, uh, anybody will tell you that there was an enormous um, impact from all of those um, jobs, the, the big salaries of those jobs. Um, and as Susan said, I think just a little bit of the prestige of having that big corporate presence, I think, in the community makes a difference. Not that Pfizer's still there, but in, not in, 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 in anywhere as big a way. But I, I will say that something that we've learned from southeastern Connecticut, though, is, and this was years before we started talking about innovation hubs of bioscience or clusters in various cities or corridors as have been tried both here in, in Connecticut but also in and around Boston and North Carolina and other places. Um, we've heard for years, David, that there is a, a certain type of skill set around, say, Pfizer workers or a specific sort of skill set for those who make submarines that you really can't replicate anywhere else. And if those jobs up and leave, you literally break apart this very tightly wound community that is both people who work for the big corporation and then spin off corporations that feed that big corporation. And that's one of the, the big problems here. I don't know if GE leaving has the same sort of impact, but we have seen that happen before when we've shed either submarine manufacturing jobs or bioscience jobs in the state. Once those jobs leave, you break kind of a fabric that's been built around 
how to make a certain type of <clears throat> thing in a place. Right. It's also sort of a culture of the place, and certainly Eastern Connecticut has this submarine culture, and we've been building these submarines for so many years and basing them there, and um, and there is a kind of an expertise, and there's a kind of a, a back and forth. There's small companies that, that are um, subcontractors to Electric Boat and to the submarine ma- making, and um, there are um, uh, there are just these associations within the community that are hard to you, you you you'd hate to break them, and that was the the the, the great worry about losing the submarine base um, because it would kind of as you say break that kind of connection that that kind of keeps feeding on itself, and it's so important to our economy. Can I ask you about the prestige thing, Colin? Though I mean, we've been through this so many times, and Susan, I think quite rightly talks about the sports team as a metaphor, right? That nobody thought that the New England Patriots coming to Hartford was actually going to really revitalize the city or that it really would even happen or that it would be a, a great idea. But there's something that makes you feel major league about having the New England Patriots uh, or the Hartford Whalers as opposed to having the Hartford Wolfpack and no football team. Is it kind of like that? I mean, is is Connecticut really just looking at itself now as eh, kind of a minor league and which, uh, you know, because we don't have any big cities, the big guys are going to go elsewhere and do the really fun stuff and we'll just be left to do our own little thing? It could be just me. But I never thought of myself as a person who lived in a state that had the GE headquarters. That was just sort of not something. When I thought about sort of what I either liked or didn't like about Connecticut or what was cool about Connecticut or what our, you know, sort of our our sort of formless, amorphous capital really was, uh, I didn't think that the GE headquarters was part of it. Now, that could be just me, but I I don't think people identify with that the way they identify with having a sports team. I I mean, I think the way that people identify with having a sports team is completely completely irrational and tends to twist economies out of shape. But let me just say this, and I think underlying a lot of these conversations I think is a fallacy, which is that in fact, the desirable state of, of economy is a static one, that really what would be great would be if GE stayed in the place that it's been for 40 years. And that just doesn't happen. And what GE is doing right now, for example, is probably sending 200 bodies to Boston and bringing 600 bodies from other parts as they kind of reorganize their company and put different people in different places and, and, and even rethink their mission, which they've been doing for a number of years now. And that's what all businesses do. And as you drive around any place, particularly here in the Northeast, if you drive around small towns, you'll see places that have been vacated by old mills and and, and other industrial kinds of companies that fled south. Um, And either the town reinvented itself and figured things out and figured out what to do with that space and, and figured out how to thrive after their old model died out, or it's a dead town. Um, but what you don't see are mills. <laughs> Because <laughs> they didn't stay. Because things change. It's like you know what Woody Allen said about relationships that they were like sharks. You know, if they stop moving, they die. Well, I mean, economies are like that too. They they're not static. They they change all the time. So it wasn't really probably realistic to think. Well, GE will just be here forever in this place. The question is. In a dynamic, ever-changing economy, uh, how good are you at keeping up with those trends and playing to your own strengths and, and trying to capitalize on some of the changes going on in the labor market? Uh, a last question comes from uh, Nancy on Twitter, and I'll put it to you, Susan. Is it wrong to say good riddance? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it kind of isn't wrong. Um, they were they were asking for a lot, um, and it felt like they were trying to hold the state hostage a little bit. Um, and their their initial grievance was over something that was so small uh, that that tax that that they were uh, the unitary tax. the unitary tax that's the one uh, something that's not not a huge deal especially for a company that really doesn't pay a lot in taxes anyway um, you know it's I think it's it's tough it's psychologically difficult 
But like Colin says, yeah, I think I think we're going to be better off in the long run. We will find ways to to build and move on. And, and hopefully somebody uses the space that's down in Fairfield. And uh, I'm sure people are already looking at this space, Klee David. Band. The Cleban Company is trying to buy it right now. Well, and I think that that's a big piece of it. I mean, one of the problems of southeastern Connecticut, you know, Pfizer up and leaves, you, you have this these kind of uh, real estate issues, right? These parcels of land mm-hmm. that yes, have been Pfizer, developed for a certain thing, right? <laughs> Pfizer actually tore um, one of their buildings down rather than pay taxes on it. Um, that was, a, that was a, a blow to see a big modern office building come down just because of the property taxes were, were too high. Yeah, we, we can't discount the real estate piece of this. Well, we when we come back uh, from our break, we're going to be talking about something else. It's a big part of Governor Malloy's transportation plan, but some advocates have been kind of taking it on. The governor says he wants to widen the highways to reduce congestion. Uh, many people who study the issue say widening highways does the opposite. It puts more people on the roads, and it could increase congestion. We're going to be talking about the governor's transportation plans that's coming up next here in the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to revisit a conversation about drought, not just drought out in the West where it's become a, a factor of life almost every day, but in Connecticut. We've been in a moderate drought for a, a while, even after some soaking rains. We'll be talking about drought and what it means here in the Northeast coming up on tomorrow's program. Today, it's The Wheelhouse here on Where We Live. Our weekly news roundtable, Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show, joins us, along with Susan Bigelow, columnist from ctnewsjunkie.com, and David Collins, a columnist for The Day of New London. Uh, Earlier, we talked about General Electric's decision to leave Connecticut. One of the things frequently cited as a need to improve the business climate in the state is our transportation system. Now, last year, Governor Malloy announced a $100 billion transportation plan. Last week, a panel made some recommendations on how to pay for it, uh, including increasing the retail gasoline tax by two cents per year for seven years, increasing the state's wholesale fuel tax, uh, boosting rail and bus fares, establishing a funding lockbox uh, within the state constitution, and implementing all electronic tolling on highways and using congestion pricing. Before we get to the story we want to cover about some of what Governor Malloy's plans are, Colin, what about this way to pay for it? I mean, we're talking about a lot more taxes, uh, especially at a time when gas prices are low. Maybe some fuel taxes are something people can um, you know, uh, absorb a little bit more. Then there's the question of toll, something we bring up a lot in the governor's administration hasn't really want to talk about passive toll collection very much. What do you, what do you see uh, about these ways to pay for this plan? What I don't see is those ways being considered in the current or the upcoming legislative session. So in other words, heading into election year, those will not, I mean, it's already been made clear, those will not be put on the table. So they'll become election year issues too. Republicans running against Democrats will say, well, you know, the minute they get back in here, here's what they're going to do. Um, I, 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 as a practical, that's the political question. As a practical matter, I don't see how you do this without, in fact, increasing the gas tax. I'm not opposed to increasing the gas tax. The one thing that I would say about all this is, and maybe this is what you, what we were about to get to, but maybe I'll, I'll just put it out there now. The only problem that I have with this, and I always feel a little bit bad when a panel puts in you know, nine months or whatever it is to start studying something, and then we go on the air and having made a cursory review of their work, start picking it apart. But um, the one thing that I will say is if if your strategy, and this is more about Governor Malloy, if your strategy is everything, you have no strategy. And that's always been my problem with Governor Malloy's transportation strategy. I'm glad that he's made it such a priority. I think it's a hugely important thing for the state of Connecticut to change its transportation infrastructure. But if, if ultimately your strategy is to feed every little baby bird in the nest with its gaping mouth, you don't don't have a strategy. You're just feeding all the birds. And, and I, that's my problem with this report. Um, Susan? 
No, I, I kind of agree with that. Um, back to the idea of how to pay for it. I, I wonder how much of this is actually possible to get through the legislature, even next year after the election. Um, if we're talking about increases to the gas tax, well, I could see that happening. Um, tolling is going to be hugely controversial because nobody wants to have tolls in their backyard, which is why I'm afraid what they're going to do is they're going to slap tolls on all the borders because there are fewer legislatures, legislators from the borders um, and not in the interior of the state where there's a lot more traffic. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that this is this is sort of a everything kind of a kind of a deal where the 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 governor wants to widen the highways and put in more more public transit and um well, we, we really should be focusing on one or the other. Well, and it also gets down to these how-to-pay-for-it questions. Mm. Um, tolling on the highways will have the residual impact of getting fewer people on the highways. Theoretically, that's one of the, that's one of the advantages. But boosting rail and bus fares, David, would uh, potentially have fewer people actually riding mass transportation. And so some of the ways that you pay for it incentivize a certain type of behavior – other ways to pay for it incentivize the type of behavior you don't actually want. Right. Good point. I, I think um, um, tolls, you know, if you drive down 95 on the East Coast, you realize how, um, how toll-free Connecticut roads are. When you go, Delaware, I think, has two great big tolls that you, you hit in like, I don't know, it seems like 10 miles. Um, so, I mean, drivers are using the, the, the state drivers, uh, interstate drivers are using the highways. They should, they could be tolled for that and pay for it. I, and I think uh, you make a good point that um, getting people off the highways is obviously the best way to, to deal with congestion and infrastructure problems and putting them into trains, putting more trains on the rails and, and lowering the price and subsidizing that from the from even from the uh, gas taxes and tolls, I think makes a lot of sense. Sh- should we, uh, sort of in, in the way that sin taxes have done this, Colin, should we be considering uh, tolling or raising gas prices or maybe even lowering or keeping public uh, transit rates flat in order to incentivize a certain type of behavior? We know that when gas prices go up, fewer people drive. We know that when there's more tolls, fewer people use those roads. And we also know that if prices for public transit go up, it's going to be harder to get people to ride public transit. Should we be trying to um, shape public consciousness and behavior by the way we toll? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's the whole idea here. I mean, David just said it. We've all said it in one way or another. What is it you want to do? Well, really what you do want to do for a whole bunch of different reasons, including going back to GE, creating vibrant urban hubs that have high concentration of multi-use development, you know, for all kinds of different reasons. You want to get people off the highways. Young people don't like to sit in traffic jams. Young people don't even like to drive all that much. We know that millennials drive at a lower rate than any preceding generation of the automotive age. So, yeah, you want to get people off the highway. Ways you want to create a, a lot more intermodal transportation options. Um, so yeah, that's why you. Here's the situation where you do pick winners and losers, and the losers really ought to be the people who want to clog up the highways. So, you know, they ought to have to pay for it, they, and it ought to be made, it ought to be disincentivized. And getting into mass transit should be as cheap as it can possibly be made. To do that, you have to sit there in your gubernatorial office and say, "That's what I want." I want to get people, I want to get cars off the highway. I want to get people out of their cars. I want to get them into other kinds of of transportation options. Uh, I want to create land use planning too, which emphasizes living near where you work or living on a rail line or a a busway or whatever. You know, I want to do all those things. So I'm going to pick winners and I'm going to pick losers and the losers are going to be the cars and you're not going to like it. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, among the transportation changes is is a widening of highways like I-95. In this transportation plan, $11 billion is allocated for widening of these roads. But a new report by Conperg says it isn't a good use of money. Here's the state director of Conperg, Evan Preston, talking to us here on WNPR. 
Commuters on I-95 can look around the country. Places that have tried to widen highways in order to reduce congestion have failed across the board. Widening highways does not reduce congestion. The reason is simple. When you widen the highway, you increase demand for people to come onto those roads as developments emerge around the roadway. And so cars fill in that added road capacity. Now, this is up against a tweet we were just getting from Adam, uh, Susan, who says, a highway widening certainly feels like a good investment when you're sitting in traffic in Waterbury. So so here we go. Uh, Evan Preston from Conperg is saying, here's what all the studies have shown. Here's what has happened the world around. Whenever you widen highways, it forces more people onto the roads. It doesn't actually aid congestion at all. And it costs a lot of money because you're usually developing along corridors like I-95 where land is very expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But then you're Adam sitting in traffic going, I don't know, man. It's taken me an hour to get, you know, uh, not that far to work. Maybe a widening highway, a widened highway wouldn't be such a bad idea. And it does feel good to add another lane to a highway because you think, oh, well, there's more lanes for cars to travel in. But you then assume that the traffic level will stay the same, but it doesn't. And study after study has shown this. Traffic engineers know this, that adding another lane to a highway just draws more cars onto that highway. The real way to to reduce congestion is to have, first off, congestion tolling in in conjunction with a robust public transit system. And that's a public transit system that actually goes where you want to, that can get you there fairly quickly. Um, And that's what will get people, and is also reasonably affordable, uh, that's what will get people out of their cars and into... Uh, onto a train or onto a bus. So if you're trying to go from, say, Farmington to Hartford, what option do you have right now except a fairly slow bus ride? Uh, But if there were a better way to do that, if there were an easier way to do that where people wouldn't have to drive it and you could still get downtown fairly quickly, then people would do that. David? You know, I hate to be um, um, gobbling everything down at the buffet here, but Honestly, uh, all the mass transit improvements are, would be great and make a big difference. And congestion tolling to keep cars, to discourage people from getting on those congested highways, that would all be great. But, you know, you sit in the traffic in Fairfield County on 95, um, and you look at those the what, four lanes and ch- chock full. And it's hard to know what it's a 1960s design, older. I, you know, I, I think there also needs to be some some widening, too. I mean, it's just it, we're, those are 40-year-old highways. and. and and, you know, you, all those things are true that you need to discourage people from using them, but you need to so – in some places, there just is an infrastructural problem. I, I, and I think that that's, that that's part of the question because there's, there's an infrastructure problem of the highways are actually breaking down. One of the reasons people sit in traffic is because people don't have anywhere to go or there's a roadway that's badly damaged and a bridge that doesn't open at one point or another. And, and I think we maybe need to divorce these two things, David. There's the question of uh, – how we need to improve the infrastructure that we have and make sure that it's safe and it's actually reliable for those who use it. And then there's how we're going to spend money. As the Conberg folks are saying, you know, do we want to spend $11 billion to widen those roads as opposed to do something else with that money? Right. No, that's, that makes good sense. And, and really, the, the, the mass transit fixes and the congestion pricing fixes are pretty easy as opposed to widening and doing all those infrastructure improvements. So if you begin that way and see if you can kind of lower the, the, the traffic volume, that might be the better better plan. 
Um, I'll try to go quickly here. Uh, one reason I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but one reason Adam is stuck in traffic right now is because they are widening the highway that he's on. Um, so you should bear that in mind when you think about I-95. I-84 out Waterbury Way is a relative, relatively painless highway compared to I-95 where you can be in Milford. And I always love that they have those informational signs that come up and they say, like, rabbit ran across road in Greenwich delay for the next 400 miles. You know, I mean, it's like not, it takes nothing to cause a traffic jam on I-95, right? You know? <laughs> Nothing. So imagine construction. Imagine highway widening construction, which is one of the reasons Adam is feeling pain on, on I-84. This is not going to be a pain-free process. And as Susan suggests, there may not be a reward waiting at the end. The, the last thing I want to say is that ultimately it does – I sound like Bill Curry, but it comes back to land use planning too. What's happened in our state, and I don't know how reversible it is. But, you know, for example, I w- used to work for a radio station that was located in the Gold Building in downtown Hartford. They moved out to one of these suburban leafy office parks. Uh, out in some weird Bermuda Triangle of Farmington and Bristol and Plainville, you know, and then people, my program director, who you know was a young person starting a family, she went up like she could only find an affordable house in East Windsor, so that was her commute, East Windsor to wherever the hell we were out there off Route Six. That's not a commute that makes any sense, right? I mean, that's not you, you can't build mass transit to go these places. <laughs> so one of the problems we have to look at how we plan, uh, how how we allocate our, our resources and incentivize growth in areas so that people's, where people live will pair up well. That's the name of the show, right? Where people live will pair up well with where they work. Uh, Susan, and a last minute here, though, for you. The one thing in all those recommendations that the panel makes um, is this lockbox that the governor wants that he wasn't able to get during this, this last special session that maybe is going to come up again during this session. The idea that any money that's supposed to be for transportation stays in this lockbox that can't be used for anything but transportation is there a sense that this will actually happen this time around? There is, actually. The governor certainly seems optimistic. There seem to be a lot of people on board with the idea that that they want to get this thing done. Um, I, I do love these things where you have to pass a constitutional amendment to save the legislature from itself. Uh, <laughs> there's another one out there about open space, preserving open space that the legislature will steal. Uh, so... Yeah, I think that there's a good chance that this will happen, and hopefully we'll see it on our ballot in November. I, I, a last thing for you, David. Uh, the panel outlined several transportation corridors where tolls could be considered. This is the one I thought you'd like. Route 11, particularly if it's extended from Salem down to I-95 in East Lyme. Oh, That'll no. be great. You'll get Route 11 all the way there and then just toll the crap out of it. I think everybody, if they, if they build it, they'll be glad to pay the toll. I, I guess so. David Collins is a columnist for the Day of New London. Thank you for coming in today, and thanks for all your great reporting on the Senator Maynard story. I really appreciate it. Thanks for it. having me. Uh, thanks also to Susan Bigelow. Columnist at ctnewsjunkie.com. Always good to see you, Susan. Thank you. And Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. Thank you, Colin. Lockbox. Colin's talking about Barbara Streisand this afternoon on the show. That should be a lot of fun. Our program, as always, is produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. And the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. You can check out our website, wnpr.org slash where we live for more information on our show or to continue your conversation. And if you want to check us out on CTN, the Connecticut Network, they were here with our cameras as well today. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live.